0: All right, Ross, today we're continuing on our conversation about eschatology. Remember, eschatology is just this big word about the end times. And so we're in week two of the series. Last week, we gave just a general overview of eschatology. So for our listeners who missed that one, make sure to check out week one in the series, just last week's episode. But today, we're going to jump into, I don't know, one of the sexier topics on eschatology. We're going to talk about the rapture. In, in fact, we're going to talk about three views on the rapture. We're going to talk about pre-trib rapture of the church, pre-wrath rapture of the church, and post-trib rapture of the church. So for some of our listeners, they're like, oh, this is perfect. I love talking about this stuff. But other listeners probably are saying, I don't even know what those words are. So we're we're going to try to dumb it down for everybody And we're using, kind of as our resource, we're using this book called Three Views on the Rapture. It's really a good book from the CounterPoints series. We'll put a link to it down below. Ross, what would you, I don't know, I don't know, how would you start off this conversation before we jump into all these details here? Like, why does, I guess, what is the rapture and why does it matter?
1: The rapture is simply when Jesus returns to gather his church to himself. And it, it comes from uh, one Thessalonians chapter four, starting in verse thirteen. It talks about how Jesus returns, and he, and uh, those who are in Christ, who are alive at the time, are caught up. It says to meet Him in the air, and all the people, all the Christians who are who have died, are resurrected at that point in time. And the idea of being caught up to meet Him as He descends onto the earth—that's the word in Greek word that is uh, that means to be. The caught up is to be raptured. And so like when you think of the word in English, we think about a rapturous experience is something that you're just caught up with emotionally. And so this is the idea of that term comes from the time when Jesus returns and his people are caught up to meet him. Now, that doesn't sound controversial. But what's controversial about it or what people disagree on about that is the timing of that event with respect to other events surrounding the return of Jesus. And so that's what we want to explore uh, from this book.
0: Okay, so hold on a second. It might not sound controversial, Ross, but it sure does sound weird. Like I I could hear a a, a new Christian or maybe someone who's exploring Christianity, they're listening to the Pursue God podcast, they love the content on the book of Mark, or on who Jesus is, or his miracles, or whatever. But now they're like, "What? What are you talking about, Willis? You're you're telling me that there's going to come a time when Jesus is coming back, and the believers are all going to be like taking taken up into into the air." So, I guess maybe let's address it first of all from the vantage point of the uninitiated. It does sound kind of weird, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, maybe it'd be helpful to read the passage uh, from 1 Thessalonians in verse thirteen, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So people have a frame of reference that we're talking about. Uh, Paul says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So at the surface, he's answering the question of resurrection. What happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who've passed away before we did? He links that to the return of Jesus. Verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. So this is even Stephen here. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And that's described, that same phenomenon is described in a number of places um, throughout the New Testament. But he goes on. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So the question on people's minds is, hey, when Jesus comes back again, then what happens to us? And what happens to people who have died then? That's the question people have. And, and Paul's saying that when he, Jesus comes back... We are so connected to Him, and we have so much relationship with Him, and He owns us. We belong to Him. Our lives are linked to Him for eternity because of our faith in Jesus. So He's saying, here's what happens, that, when, that you're going to meet Him on the way in the door. You're going to meet Him. You're going you're to, like somebody comes visit your home, and it's somebody that you love, you're not going to wait for the door to knock. You're going to run out to the yard or run out to the uh, to the driveway and meet the person when they get out of the car. So that's kind of what he's saying is that we're going to be caught up to meet Jesus and we'll be with him forever from that point in time on. So hopefully that helps make a little more sense out of it. So this is for our Christian
0: listeners. This is maybe if you've read the Left Behind series or if you've watched any of those movies, or for our older Christian listeners, I remember back in the 70s growing up in youth group, well, eighties growing up in youth group and watching the movie Thief in the Night. And you know, mm-hmm. some some people are gonna be left behind. So <laughs> this is where <laughs> now again, we don't know exactly how this is gonna work, but a pile of clothes is left on the ground. We used to play tricks on our siblings back in the in the eighties when we thought about the rapture, because I think maybe one of the movies depicted it like this: that pe- people were raptured, but their clothes are left behind, or maybe people have seen those cars w- that have bumper stickers that say, "That say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned." And yeah. so, you know, drive. Someone's driving a car, and then they're going to be taken away up into heaven. And now the car has no driver,
1: and it's. It, it, I think that's what these movies depict. Is that right. how? Is that how it's going to happen, Ross? We don't really know exactly how it's going to happen. It's somebody's imagination of how it's going to happen. By the way, all the movies that have ever been made about the rapture all per- have a perspective that one of the three perspectives we're looking at. They would have the pre-tribulational rapture perspective. Yeah, um, would be interpreted in those in the movies and in popular literature, and that's why you know, as we'll talk about later, that's why um, this view is probably the most popular view in Christian Christianity today, because it's been depicted in those kind of mass media vehicles.
0: Okay, so a couple more questions before we get to the three views. Is, is one of the options that the rapture isn't a thing, that this is not a literal rapture? Like, for our Christian listeners out there who maybe don't know very much about this, they're like, ah, can I just opt out of this altogether? Well, how would you answer that biblically?
1: Well, what, what is a given for sure is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to dra- uh, gather his church to himself. He's going to set everything in, in the world right. Um, so the brokenness and fallenness and the uh, anti-God nature of the world we live in, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix all that. So this is why his return, the Bible continues to call it, our blessed hope. It's something that Christians long for and look forward to. Now, exactly what is it going to look like? Um, There's a lot of things that happen when Jesus returns. One of them is his people being gathered to him. So ultimately, we want to be gathered to Jesus. That's what eternity is all about. But we don't know all the details. And we don't know one of the big questions in, in prophetic kind of interpretation is how much of the description is literal and how much of it is figurative how much of it is symbolic and this seems on the face of it to be uh not as much of a symbolic passage because it's not in the middle of a of a section of symbolism we look at the book of revelation a lot of that symbolic book of daniel has a lot of symbolic references to the return of jesus so we look at this we say well you know if I'm alive, I want to be gathered to Jesus. Do I want to like? How does that kind of what's that going to look like? I, I don't want to have to die first if I'm alive when He comes back. So, and what am I going to stand in line at the mall waiting like I do for for mall Santa and everybody standing in line waiting to be uh, you know connected with Santa? So imagine all the different ways that we're gathered to things in, in our culture today. We drive to an arena. We we go through the through the turnstile. Is that going to be, or we just come to church, we walk through the doors, what's it going to look like? And Paul's vision of what it looks like to be gathered to Jesus is more like, oh, everybody's going to do it at once. It's not going to be take a ticket or wait your wait your turn. It's going to be something that happens all at once. And if if Christianity is a global movement, then you think, well, how does that occur? How could that possibly occur? Maybe it occurs you know, in some supernatural way like this.
0: Okay, so the rapture is a thing, no question about it that believers will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We don't exactly know what it's going to look like. We don't know if your clothes go with you or if they stay behind and freak out your loved ones. And the other thing we know about this passage is it says, so encourage each other with these words. This is supposed to be an encouragement, but it's really only an encouragement to believers because... This really kind of draws a distinction that the rapture is something that will happen for followers of Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, then Jesus will catch you up in the air, and it's an encouraging thing. Keep that in mind. We'll make sure to come back to that at the end. For our listeners who don't really know what they believe about Jesus, this might be a motivating conversation as we talk a little bit about the rapture. So let's get into it. Ross, let's start with the Pre-trib position. Walk us through what is the tribulation and what does pre-trib rapture mean?
1: Okay, so um, the pre-trib means okay. So there's it's all using the word tribulation. All of these, most of them, pre-trib, post-trib. Those are the common ones from the past. There's a third one that has emerged. It means that there's a period of time, and we'll talk about that in a more in a coming episode. We mentioned it in the eschatology episode that we. Filmed or that we recorded earlier, there's a period of time where uh, it's called the tribulation or the great tribulation where things get worse on earth than they've ever been. Then the question is, where does that, where does the rapture occur with respect to that tribulation? But more importantly, where does the rapture occur with respect to the public return of Jesus? So a lot of the passages in the uh, New Testament talk about Jesus coming back. Every eye can see him. He comes the same way that he left, visibly. He comes on the clouds, so to speak, is one of the phrases that he uses. So, but the rapture is. It isn't for everybody. It's for Christians, and so will that happen? Are there two returns of Jesus? Is is the big question? Does he come for his church, and then he comes publicly later, or there's a space in between the, those times? And and the pre-tribulation period says, yeah, there's a space in between those two. There's seven years apart. That space is the great tribulation, and so the idea is that the church will be taken up to be with Jesus before he appears publicly to triumph and to judge the, the whole world. And in the, in the meantime, um, the church is taken up out of the tribulation to be spared from it because of the sense that Christians, the tribulation is judgment on the world. Christians are spared from the judgment of God. There's a few little wrinkles on, on this whole issue that are hard to you know, to explain in a, in a brief statement. Okay, but it is
0: important, again, for our listeners to know that in a couple of weeks, we'll talk more about the tribulation period itself. But that, you know, it's hard to have these conversations and put them in the right order because because it depends on your perspective on all of this to know what order everything comes in. So we could have started by talking about the tr- tribulation, but we'll leave that in-depth conversation for later. Ross, I guess the question for right now is— how many people in evangelical Christianity today hold a pre-trib rapture view, and maybe how has it changed since, I don't know, the the early church or, or even the Reformation days or even 100 years ago?
1: Today, it's probably the majority, again, as I mentioned, because it's been popularized in literature and movies and so forth. But the pre-trib rapture position mostly has emerged in the 1800s, and it is has largely emerged in conjunction with a theological approach called dispensationalism. So there's some issues about the nature of the church and the nature of Israel, and what, who does what, and what is God doing in which group, and so forth, that play into the pre-tribulational. At least for most, historically has done so. There's a lot of people who um, can articulate the pre-tribulational rapture position without the dispensational uh, perspective. That's a newer development, but it's been it's been probably two less than 200 years that most people have um, adopted this. And prior to that, then the post-tribulational position was probably the norm in the life of the church for centuries. Now, in terms of understanding how Jesus returns and and what the timing of all that has to do.
0: Okay, so hold on a second. You just introduced a new concept and we I don't want to get into the weeds too much on this, but I I think it's worth talking about what you mean by dispensational. So so this was a this was related to theology that that used that word but you're saying now nowadays it it isn't necessarily connected to dispensationalism so explain what
1: dispensationalism is dispensationalism is a broad movement but the the gist of dispensationalism as i understand it is that god has two different purposes or agendas or let's say two different programs for israel and the church and the church should not be uh confused with israel as the earthly people of God instead of the heavenly people of God. And so um, that, ha- that plays in in terms of how a lot of people see Israel today and see God's future for Israel today and how they interpret certain passages of Scripture that deal with Israel and the church. And so the idea of dispensationalism is that earthly the earthly people of Israel, the Jewish people, they're, they're not part of the church per se. But God has a plan for them, and so the tribulation is seen as God dealing with Israel, and so the church doesn't belong there. The church is removed for two reasons. Number one is the church doesn't undergo the wrath of God, and the second reason is that God is dealing with Israel during that period of time. The church doesn't need to be there. So, some of our listeners are saying,
0: "What? When did we start talking about Israel? I thought we were talking about the end times." How does Israel fit into this whole conversation. Maybe it'd be helpful to explain, you know, how the Revelation—we're not getting into all these passages, but how maybe some of the content, some of the apocalyptic literature in Revelation kind of relates to this, and why theologians have had to wrestle with the idea of of Israel as they've talked about eschatology. Give us just a quick little overview of that.
1: Well, uh, it goes back to the old testament old testament talks about the day of the lord and that idea is taken up in the new testament but say for example in the book of daniel there's a number of prophetic there's some visions that daniel has that are prophetic they link together pretty closely to what jesus says in matthew chapter 24 about the, the his return the end of the age and so based on the old testament understanding daniel's all about israel and so that this uh, character who arises at the end, who's an opponent to God, is going to oppress Israel, and so there's some some things that some ongoing things that where appears like Israel is in the picture at, at the end uh, during the during the tribulation. But but if, if Israel's not the church, then um, you know the return of Christ has a different bearing on Israel than it does on the church. So there's some prophecies in the Old Testament about how how the the Jewish people will see Jesus when he returns, and many of them will realize that they they need to, that he's their Messiah.
0: So if I understand it right, what you're saying is this pre-trib view became popular in the 1800s, but it was connected to more the dispensationalist understanding of, of history, salvation history. But you're saying today's today's evangelical might not necessarily be dispensational, but they're
1: still probably pre-trib. That's a great summary. They may not have thought about or have any understanding of the dispensational issues, or they may have accepted the pre-trib position not knowing that it's been tied to a, pre- a dispensational perspective. And then there's uh, other, a group of people they are becoming more sophisticated, I think, in their biblical defense of the pre-tribulational position who uh, don't accept dispensation and don't use the dispensational arguments for pre-trib, they use other arguments from other parts of Scripture for pre for the pre-trib position.
0: But either way, this is by far the dominant understanding. So for our, for our listeners who are churchgoers, who've never really talked about this, this is the first time they're really thinking about the rapture or diving into it or even about eschatology— you go to a church where maybe there's not a lot of teaching on this, chances are pretty good, Ross, that their church, if they were to take a stance, that their
1: church would take this stance. Yes, that's true. And let me, let me just say, there's two reasons why, probably pre- predominant reasons why this pre-tribulation position, people hold it. And one is because the emphasis in the New Testament about the imminency... Of Jesus' return. He could return at any moment. No one knows the time or day. The, the post-tribulational rapture or the other, the pre-wrath rapture, imply that there's certain things that have to happen first, like a tribulation before Jesus comes back, for example. There's other signs. But this one, from the perspective of the pre-tribulationists, this one takes more seriously the idea that Jesus says, "You don't, nobody knows the hour of the day. Mm. Be ready. It's imminence. It could be any moment. And for the post-tribulation or the pre-wrath person, they couldn't say maybe that it could be any moment. They could say it could be very soon, could be right around the corner, but it can't be necessarily any moment. So that's one, one train of evidence. And the other one is there's this sense that the Bible says that Christians are not going to undergo the wrath of God because Jesus paid for God's wrath on our behalf. And if the tribulation is a period of God's judgment being poured out divine judgment on humanity on antichrist and on other other uh, rebels against him then it makes sense to them that the way God would spare his church from being there during his wrath would be simply to remove his church. And I think there's other answers to that but that's the that's those are the two things probably that drive the pre-tribulational rapture perspective more than anything else.
0: Okay, so if you've watched or read uh, the Left Behind series, if you've, for you older listeners, if you're like me where you grew up in a church and youth group watching Thief in the Night, which was like the '70s version of Left Behind, so Ross, those all of those are coming from the vantage point of of pre-trib rapture of the church. Correct. So, for people who want to see this in action, go go rent those. Go to your nearest Blockbuster. Oh wait, that's not a thing anymore. Jump on YouTube, and <laughs> you, I think you can search "Thief in the Night" movie. That one's pretty cheesy, but I might do that tonight. Maybe we'll pop some popcorn and watch that tonight. Yeah, just
1: for old times' <laughs> yeah. or, sake,
0: or the Left Behind series. Now, again, we're not trying to make fun of it, but it does. It will. It. I think it'll show people kind of the the importance of this theologically, even just practically. In fact, I think the Left Behind series, I we do have the DVD around here somewhere, and it comes with instructions uh, for people who have been left behind. So now, again, I, it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit, but it shouldn't. If we believe this stuff, it should be, if my loved ones haven't trusted Jesus for salvation, that means they will be left behind as, as Christians are taken up and again, in the pre-trib perspective, Christians are taken up to be with Jesus, and we miss all of the tribulation, all of the really difficult stuff that is going to happen. We'll get into that in a couple weeks, but but the non-believers will not miss it. So that is actually really, really serious stuff. So we don't—I don't mean to make light of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's serious stuff, and I think that's kind of the perspective of the writers of this of the even though it's fiction. Um, It's still based on these ideas in this passage that we read from 1 Thessalonians 4. So it is definitely important to understand this stuff. Now, Ross, before we move on to the next perspective, what what are some of the objections that critics might have to this pre-trib rapture view?
1: Well, one objection, as we mentioned, um, it's been it's relatively recent in in theological history. That has become an objection. to Say, well, maybe it's kind of an innovation, and and if the church never really accepted it largely, well, why should we accept it now? And so the church history argument, and others contend that the Bible here. This is the biggest question for me: is does the Bible seem to support the idea of a two stage return of Jesus? In other words, are there two returns of Jesus—one for a private one and a public one—and um, the Bible doesn't ever say explicitly. Here's the first one. Here's the second one. It it portrays it all as if there's only one, but you know there's different ways to interpret those passages. I would would have to say that this is not an, this is not an essential issue in Christian salvation uh, because there's different ways to take you have to start with some assumptions, some starting point assumptions as you understand how these verses all fit together, you're going to connect the dots in different ways. All the data from Daniel and from uh, Matthew 24 and then the book of Revelation and then the things that Paul wrote and all that data has to be connected and different people connect the dots in different ways. And so uh, people have critiqued the pre-tribulational view, but not from the point of view of this is heresy. This just say, hey, this just is a better way to understand uh, scripture. So it's basically the idea of a two stage return of Jesus that it seems to be the biggest objection.
0: Okay, so that's the pre trib rapture of the church. That's the view that most evangelicals today would ascribe to, and the next one is called the pre wrath rapture
1: of the church. Ross, explain the difference between those two views. Okay, so the pre-wrath position is kind of mediates between the pre-tribulational and the post-tribulational position. The pre-wrath, it's called—it's not called tribulation, it doesn't use the word tribulation in the title on purpose. The pre-wrath view uh, believes that the tribulation has two different segments to it. One part is the suffering of God's people under oppression and, and and so forth. The second part of it is the actual wrath of God or the judgment of God. So they're saying that the, the rapture doesn't happen. Again, it's still a two-stage rapture. It doesn't happen when Jesus comes publicly. But it, ha- it doesn't happen at the beginning of the tribulation. It happens somewhere in the middle of the tribulation. So the Christians are going to go through persecution but they're not going to go through the judgment of God on the world. And so that's why it's pre-wrath, because the wrath of God is, is poured out somewhere in the middle of that tribulation period. Okay, so when
0: growing up, Ross, I remember hearing pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. So is this the same thing as the mid-trib, and did we just change the terminology or help, help our, maybe our longer-time
1: Christians to understand that? Yeah, it's similar to mid to mid-trib position. It's really it's taken the mid-trib position which nobody ever felt like, well, very few people ever felt like it was a very satisfying. It was kind of felt like a compromise because and it is a compromise really because it says, "Oh, there are things that have to happen first. There are signs and so forth, but the church will not go through God's wrath." Well, the pre-wrath position has made that case biblically maybe a little more carefully, a little more scholarship involved in how those things are interpreted. And so it it is an improvement on the mid-trib, but it is similar to to it in its effect.
0: Okay, so people who have this view, what would they look to scripturally to support this? Like, why not just be... Pre-trib, it sounds close enough to pre-trib. What
1: what is what's the scripture that they point to that would distinguish them? The key things would be the fact that the idea that there are uh, visible signs that Jesus says come before His return. So in mat in Matthew twenty four, where Jesus is talking about the last days, talking about the re- His own return, He says that hey, there's going to be some signs, some events in the heavens. There's going to be some things that happen on the earth. Like it says, the gospel will be preached to the whole world before the end comes. There'll be you know, you know signs in nature, the, the the stars, the sun will have some some things which it, which are arguments that the post tribulation advocate will also make. So the pre wrath and the post trib are in agreement on the fact that it can't happen at any moment without things happening first. The Pre-wrath and the pre-trib positions are equal in the sense that the pre-wrath says no, the Christians will not go through that part of the tribulation that is that represents God's judgment poured out on the earth, God's wrath, and so so they look at at some things that that in the Bible that say have to happen first, and um, that's what separates them from the pre-trib position.
0: So would they? Would a pre-wrath person? Are there any markers that sort of identify them that point in the tribulation where they'll they're up and they're out of here, right? Where the Christians are
1: out of here. So in Daniel's in Daniel's prophecies as well as in Jesus' uh, Matthew 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse given on the Mount of Olives. And so with between those two, there's there's olive uh, Olivet Discourse is very is very connected to Daniel. And there's something that happens there. Daniel talks about a, a series of kings, and most of those are probably historical kings that, you know, before the time of Jesus arose and conquered Israel in some way or another, but but then that casts forward to a future ruler who is, we link him to the Antichrist of uh, Revelation chapter 13, or he's called the man of lawlessness. But Matthew 24, Jesus quotes that, and he says, this person will arise, and when that person it says in, in Daniel chapter 9, I believe it is, that he's going to desecrate the temple and declare himself to be God. And so that becomes the midpoint. That's the turning point when, um, when, this, when this individual takes that stance and then he turns against the people of God and turns against God in a visible public way.
0: Okay, so here we are talking about Israel again. So, Ross, are are we talking about the physical temple, an actual temple, a Jewish temple, or could this mean something else? Like, how would a
1: pre-wrath proponent answer that question? I think most people in these positions, because this is a futurist position, and it's not, you know, as I mentioned, the different positions of the millennium, say these are things that happen on a regular basis throughout history. Cyclically, there are Antichrists, there are tribulation periods, and so forth. But from a futurist p- position, I think most um, st- uh, scholars of prophecy would say that uh, the, t- the temple in Jerusalem will be some- at some day rebuilt. For these things to happen, and for some, maybe some other things in Scripture to happen, that the, the temple would have to be um, re- restructured from rubble
0: is that ross by the way is that why many american christians are so like interested in israel and things relating related to israel is this part of it
1: yeah i think it is i think a lot of it's driven by the sense that israel has this role to play in prophecy and 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 there's certain key things that have to happen that israel gets involved in Um, i think that does drive a lot of it
0: Okay, we've been getting in the weeds on this. We've talked about the abomination of desolation, but we, we probably also need to mention something about the the seals in the book of Revelation because the in the pre-wrath position, that's one of the other things that they point to to say this is why we think this position makes more sense than say a pre-trib
1: position. So in the book of Revelation, there are there's three aspects of of God, seems like God's judgment. The Lamb uh, is introduced as Jesus. He breaks the seals on this scroll. The scroll, and as he breaks the seals, there's seven seals, and then and then there's seven trumpets, and then there's seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. Depending on how you interpret Revelation, is it cyclical? Are those separate kind of things? Are, do they um, nest within each other? Um, hard to know, but Uh, from the pre-wrath position would say that Jesus opening the seals, that the outpouring of God's wrath doesn't happen until the opening of the next to the last seal, Uh, or the final seals then are sort of equal to the pouring out of the bowls. It becomes really clear in, in Revelation 16 that the bowls are God's wrath. They're called bowls of wrath. What about the early seals? Those are not those are contested, I guess, or the pre-wrath person would say those aren't really the wrath of God on the whole world. So that becomes a point where they say at that moment when the last seals are open and then the bowls begin, then then that's that marks a difference in the nature of the tribulation. Okay, so one last
0: thing I think to probably address here from the pre-wrath position, because I think As someone who would buy into this, part of what they're saying is, look, it seems like the Bible emphasizes that believers have to endure persecution. And so maybe a pre-rath person, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ross, but a pre-rath person is saying, I I can't buy into the pre-trib thing because I think Christians need to endure persecution. I see that all over the place in scripture. And so Am I oversimplifying it to say that they're like we? We need to endure some persecution. We just don't think we should endure like that. It doesn't seem biblical to endure the wrath of God like uh, that should only be poured out on nonbelievers.
1: That's that's a great way to characterize that position. And that is a different. I think the difference between that and the pre-tribulational rapture position is that the pre-tribulationalists view the wrath of God as being. Poured out during the entire tribulation period, right?
0: Okay, so what? What about proponents? What about? I'm sorry. What about critics of this view? What would a What would a critic say to to debunk this pre wrath view?
1: Well, I think uh, you know. I think one of the main things is that the critics would look at the, the the seals that we just talked about being open in the Book of Revelation and say, No, really, those, those are the wrath of God. You have the four horsemen. Is one of the first seals? Is maybe it's the first seal? The four horsemen and their famine and pestilence and and, and you know uh, and they would say, well, what makes that not the wrath of God? Because because the seals are being opened by Jesus, and there is some discussion about the seals being the wrath of the Lamb is going to be revealed. So I think that's the biggest critique is that you can't make a delineation necessarily between. The seals and the different forms of phenomenon that are happening—that they they'd really say, well, those are really all the wrath of God. Yeah, that, that's the main thing that I that I I'd be aware of. So, Ross, why it seems like the pre-wrath
0: view is is like a a decent middle ground, as people are going to see when we talk about the post-trib view. The pre-rath view is like a nice little middle ground. Why why is the pre-rath view not the dominant view for evangelical Christians today? Why is the pre-trib view dominant?
1: Well, I think it because it has historically been uh number 1. I think some people look at the pre-rath position and say, well, it just it really it has the weaknesses of both. You know, it not only does it doesn't just have the strengths of both the other ones, it does have the weaknesses of both the other ones, and that may be that may be a fair uh, claim but I think partly because it's really a recent development and then maybe it's going to gain uh, more traction as time goes on.
0: Maybe it just needs a better marketer you know the marketing is marketing department is lacked in this particular one. I actually think American Christians love comfort. I think American Christians, I mean, honestly, the pre-trib view is just the simplest, like, I don't have to endure any of this stuff. That's great. And I think, so for many American Christians, I think that's really where they they tend to land. I mean, there's really probably a lot of answers to that question. But anyway, okay, so we've looked at pre-trib, we've looked at pre-wrath, and then finally, Ross, let's look at the glass-half-empty perspective. <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> the post—all of those cranky people out there, those cranky Christians who just love suffering. Let's talk about the post-trib
1: perspective. So again, post-trib means that this tribulation period—everyone agrees that there is some kind of a tribulation period at the end of the history as we know it, um, but this tribulation period comes first. The idea is that the rapture— And the public coming of Jesus are not two separate events. They're not separated by any time or any other events. That they're really simultaneous at the end of that tribulation period when Jesus comes back, he's just coming back once, and that uh, believers will go through the tribulation, all all aspects of it, the persecution, and they'll be there during the wrath of God. When Jesus comes back, it'll be at the end of, of that period. So really, this
0: one, in a sense, is the is the simplest the simplest understanding of some of the verses we've already read because because the pre-trib and even the pre-wrath they're they're having to argue for this this these two separate events. So the post-trib person is looking at it and saying, "I don't I don't see that in scripture. I don't see that they could be two separate events. You have to read into it a little bit. You have to be a little creative." to come up with two separate comings of Jesus, so it makes the most sense to the post-trib person. Maybe this is the person who's reading some of this most literally, and they're saying, I I don't see any any way out of that. Is that oversimplifying that argument?
1: No, that's a fa- that's a fair way to put it. Um, that certainly drives it quite a bit. Is really understanding the timing of the other things that that make up the return of Jesus. What does that look like? And, and it seems like in Matthew chapter twenty four, et cetera, that it's all one thing. You know that this kind of all com- comes together as one thing. And so the elector gathered to Jesus um, in Matthew twenty four. The elector gathered to Jesus at the time of his public. Every eye can see. Uh, return. And so there, there are things like that.
0: Let me read those verses, Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, "'Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last the sign that the Son of Man,' that's him, "'is coming, will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth,' And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. And so so a post-trib person would really rely on a passage like this. And they would combine it with the First Thessalonians 4 passage that we read. And they would say, what, Ross? They would say, so look, this is talking about just one event that happens and it's not it's not too it's not a secret coming at
1: first for Jesus, and then later on another coming. It says, you know after the events, it talks about the end of the tribulation there, and then it talks about the public coming of Jesus. and so the the pre-tribulation or the pre wrath person is going to have to answer, what does it mean that he sends out the angels and he gathers his elect, gathers his chosen ones? What does that mean? Does that it just mean he's gathering Israel? Or does it mean he's actually gathering the church to himself at that time? So one of the things, like we talked about with the pre-wrath
0: view, one of the things that the post-trib people would say is, look, there's testing. There's testing for Christians. We shouldn't try to soft sell this. Christians are going to be... I mean, Jesus said it all the time. He will always warn his disciples about testing. But I would... A pre-trib rapture person would say, well, no, that testing is just in the normal course of life. But a, but a post-trib person would say, no. Actually, this is the testing, and they would would they even go as far as to say it's it's almost like a final test, like a refining process for Christians to see if your faith is really genuine.
1: Yeah, it could be. It could be seen. I think the po- the pr- the post-trib people that I'm aware uh, familiar with would probably say, look, Christians are going to be subject to this kind of persecution and this kind of trial and testing routinely throughout history. And so this is, it may be the most severe time of it, but it's really not a different kind of thing. There's no reason for, for that reason to keep Christians out of the tribulation. And so it's, it, they say, look, it's just not surprising that Christians are going to go through these times because there's always been opposition to God, and there always will be opposition to his church.
0: Okay, what do the critics say about the post-trib rapture view?
1: It doesn't take into account this idea of the imminency Of Jesus, the surprise that you know you better be doing your thing, you better be on your on the job. Jesus said, "When the when the master returns, the servant should be doing his job." Um, We don't know when that time is, so it doesn't seem to take into account as as urgently uh, that idea that oh oh well we just have to wait till the end of the tribulation, you know then we'll know Jesus is coming back if we're there during the tribulation, or we have to see these signs occur. Others would say that, again, the dispensational thing is, for, for some people would say, well, Israel is distinct, and there should it's part of what God is dealing with them, and the church won't be there. That's the main thing. I think that's the main thing that is the idea of imminency and the idea that this is God's judgment on the world, and the church is promised exemption from the judgment of God. Those are probably the two biggest critiques.
0: You know, Ross, anytime we talk about this kind of stuff, I don't know about you, but for me and probably for many of our listeners, they were listening to you explain the pre-trib and they're like, oh yeah, that's the obvious choice. And then you explain the pre-wrath. They're like, oh wait, yeah, maybe I'm a pre-wrath person. And then they hear you explain the post-trib and they're okay, hold on, maybe I'm more of a post-trib person. What would you say to folks who are wrestling with this, trying to understand this, um, Like, how would you encourage them as they continue on in this series about eschatology?
1: Well, a few things, a couple things. Number one, we know everybody agrees that Jesus is coming Back. back, and it could be soon. And so I think we live our lives in light of His return. And then the Apostle Paul says that. Jesus says that. He says, you know, why don't you be at your du- doing your duty uh, when the Master returns? The Apostle Paul says in talking about the rapture, he says, encourage each other with these things. And then the very next chapter, he goes in talking about how this is where the, the thief in the night Language comes from. It comes from First Thessalonians chapter five, saying he's going to come back soon. So be, you know, faithful. Be doing your job. You know, don't wander away. So, so we want to be living in light of the return of Jesus. That's true for all of us, regardless of whether what position we hold on these things. Then, then secondly, I've always, I felt like, okay. So, honestly, I don't know if our listeners have heard it today, but I do lean into the post-tribulation. A thing. So that's kind of a, my my understanding of of scripture, and I understand that you know there's not all the data to, to make that a firm, hard, fast thing. But I just figure like, look, I could just maybe hope that Jesus comes back before the tribulation. <laughs> yeah. But I want to prepare as if he's coming back after the tribulation, because again, we're gonna we're not exempted from tribulation, and so we need to be ready for that, no matter what. We need to be ready for. Tribulation that might happen, you know, within history, even before Jesus comes back again. And so, why not prepare as if, in a sense, we don't know for sure? Why not prepare as if? And by the way, I would say that for the wrath of God, there is a lot of answers why Christians could be there under the wrath of God, and we'll we'll talk about that in a f- in a future when we talk more about the tribulation. And also the third thing. So number one, live like Jesus is coming back. Number two, I would I would say be prepared. For tribulation, no matter what. And then third thing is we, we recognize that these positions all have some biblical basis and there's no final, there's no not one biblical verse that says, oh, Jesus is coming back twice, or oh, Jesus, whatever. And so we just need to be charitable and we need to embrace each other in Christ and and have uh, you know, not not make not fight about this, hold our position, hold it with conviction, but you know, be charitable to people and and welcoming people with a different perspective.
0: And here's how you prepare for the rapture. And this is for everybody, no matter what perspective you have. This every, every evangelical believer, no matter where they stand on the rapture would believe this, that the way you prepare yourself for the second coming of Jesus, the way that you get counted in that number of being a follower of Jesus, so you'll be taken up with him whenever it happens in relationship to the tribulation, the way you prepare for that is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting Jesus for salvation. That's what the Bible says. This is the way to a relationship with God. This is a way to eternity that is secure in Jesus. We talk more about that in our pursuit series. If you've never been through it, we encourage you to go through that with a Christian friend or pastor or someone in your life who, who understands even just a little bit about Christianity. Say, would you go through the pursuit with me? You can find it at pursuegod.org forward slash go. Lesson six in the series is a lesson that really talks about making a response of faith to Jesus. And we encourage you, if you've never done that, we encourage you to make sure to do that. That's how you get ready for the rapture. At the end of the day, and every Christian agrees with that. So check that out. If you want to learn more about the, this particular topic, through Views on the Rapture, we'll put a link to the book down below. Make sure to check out—this is week two in our five-week series on eschatology. You can find all that at PursueGod.org. And make sure to join us next time as we continue through this series.